You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy's Outdoors 121. After last week's blog where I reviewed a book by Sue Tidwell called Cries of the Savannah, today I'm bringing you my conversation with Sue Tidwell, with the author of the book. Yes! I always enjoy those episodes where I talk with the authors of the books that I reviewed on Tommy's Outdoors because I'm really interested in the whole process of the how the book was created and uh, what was the motivation to write the book. And so this is how we started conversation with Sue about, you know, we talk about the research for the book and how long it took to, you know, complete the, the whole material and, and, uh, and to publish the book and what made Sue uh, really to publish that book. Uh, and from there, we went into uh, taking some deeper dive into some of the stories uh, described in the book. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity to ask some questions that I had while I was reading the book. And from there, we, um, you know, started discussing in general conservation in Africa, what role hunting is playing in conservation in Africa, and also some of the controversial aspects of it. Um, we didn't shy away from that conversation, and obviously Sue doesn't show shy away from that conversation in her book. Um, so very enjoyable talk with Sue, and uh, very enjoyable book. Uh, like I said last week in a, in a blog review, you definitely should get yourself that book, whether you complete novice to the, um, you know, uh, conservation issues in Africa, or whether you already know a thing or two. No doubt you will learn something new from that book. And now you can get that book using the provided links. The links are in the description of this show. And if you buy the book using those links, you not only get yourself an excellent book, you will also support the podcast and support my work on the podcast. And uh, speaking about supporting the work, uh, my work on the podcast, uh, I launched Tommy's Outdoors shop. So you can go to tommysoutdoors.com slash shop or just, you know, click on the menu called shop on tommysoutdoors.com and you can buy those t-shirts, one of those that I'm wearing right now, uh, high quality, heavy cotton t-shirt with the Tommy's Outdoors logo. And now you can also get yourself Tommy's Outdoors hats, those lovely high quality cotton hats, five panel construction with embroidered Tommy's Outdoors logo. Uh, it's a five panel, so the seam is not going across the logo. Uh, Pre-curved sandwich bill, uh, really high quality hats. Um, yeah, and you can get them for almost nothing on tommysoutdoors.com slash shop. And finally, if you want to support me personally, you can buy me a coffee. As usual, buymeacoffee.com slash tommysoutdoors, the link in the description of the show. It is greatly appreciated and helps me edit those episodes for you. And now, without any further delay, ladies and gentlemen, Sue Tidwell and Cries of the Savannah.
too. Welcome to Tommy's Outdoors. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thanks, Tommy. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you having me on here. I'm really excited to talk about uh, your book because um, I was really blown away uh, in, in you know many ways uh, by this book. And I'm sincere with this. You know, It's not like we're recording podcasts and I'm supposed to say that I'm blown away. It was really uh, more than I expected. I put it this way. And as I understand, you're you're a you're a writer, you're a hobbyist writer, but on this occasion, you kind of decided to publish the book. So, what made you to make that decision? Why, you know, what was this trigger? Uh, it was it was my love for Africa and trying to get um, an important message out. Essentially, you know, I had. I had written, to be honest, I'd written Christmas letters. I have, I'm known for my long 10-page Christmas letters where I go into all my adventures. And and my family and friends have been telling me, you need to write a book because I, I write it. They always say like they feel like they're there right with me on these little adventures. But I, I really had never a desire to publish. But once I was in Tanzania and I fell in love with the people and the wildlife and I you know, and I went there with these misconceptions and and I even understood certain things about sustainable use that people, other people didn't. And so if I would question things, it made me realize how important it was for me to, to help other people understand and give them awareness of the reality of Africa instead of this fairy tale version. So I just felt committed to um, write the book and I made a promise to Lily and our game scout that I would try to help the world understand. So it kind of evolved into this uh, book. Right. So like the whole experiences, really, you, you you decided that it was uh, worth sharing with. Like, how long was that safari trip? It was about three and a half weeks. You know, we were we were on the ground in Masimba camp for about twenty two days, and then of course there's travel both ways. So you know, three probably three days at each end. When I was reading the book, I was wondering like how the whole research process for the book looked like. Because you go into so much, like so much details, and 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 I, I imagine you spend hours and hours researching. And, and the follow up question is: Did you is part did part of that research happen before you guys actually went on the trip on that safari, or was it like everything after? It was kind of like I went down a rabbit hole because once I was over in Tanzania and saw or felt in my heart how important sustainable use of wildlife is, you know, because I had, uh, um, the readers might not understand, I, I did grow up in a, a hunting family. So I understood hunting deer and elk and certain things like that. I grew up eating deer meat, but I was one of these people who was selective about it. So I didn't want my husband hunting a zebra. Um, the idea of, of people hunting elephants and lions and leopards just really, I didn't get it. I mean, I wasn't like anti-hunter, but I because I know hunters, I know what kind of people they are, but I also didn't understand why we should need to hunt those kind of, what, that kind of wildlife when some of them are endangered. But once I got to Africa and I saw the reality of boots on the ground and I met with these people and I lived out in a remote section, even for just three weeks, um, I realized how important it is. So anyway, I felt in my heart that I needed the, I felt this in my heart, but I knew when I was writing the book, once I got to the book point, decided to write the book, I knew I had to back up what I learned with facts, you know, a little bit. I didn't want to overwhelm the book with facts. I try to make it a fun book so that people will read it, but then I just weave in the facts as I learned them. But then, you know, I just kept researching to, um, 
back up what I felt and what I learned there. Cause I just didn't want to take the hunting outfits word for it, for instance. Um, so I, or even Lily, you know, although she's a game scout and not affiliated with a hunting organization, I felt it was important to back it up. So I, I read a lot of stuff ma- mainly from non-hunting biologists is where I got most of my information, you know, to make it more credible. Yeah. Because this is always, always this, uh, uh, notion that if someone hunts, then for sure their inform you know the information is uh, somehow pro hunting rather than than uh, gen- general. Um, what what was the the, the you, you said like you didn't you didn't want to hunt a zebra? Was it the association with a horse? Well, we live on a ranch here in Idaho. My family, my husband's family, has a ranch. So we you know there's thirty some horses out of here in our pastures. So, um, yeah, and I love riding horses. I love horses. And there's just something about the zebra. It just didn't seem, it just didn't seem right. Um, you know, we tend to get so familiar with deer and elk and, you know, we, we see a million deer and we understand they have to be controlled and we understand all that here. But yet when we equate it to exotic animals, we kind of lose all of our, our common sense sometimes goes a little bit out the window and we, base things on emotion. And then that's exactly what I did. I was basing it on emotion, but you know, I still went with my husband because I, I trust in my husband. I trust in, you know, these things and I was willing to learn. And as I went with him, I just discovered they're, they're not horses <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they are wild animals. And they were one of our, they kind of turned out to be our nemesis, but, um, they're just, they're amazing animals, but, but like everything, they need to be controlled. And more than that, it's just that the hunting makes habitat valuable in its natural form. That's probably the number one benefit of hunting in Africa. Yeah. And, and why do you think is so that, that, uh, we have such a, you know, emotional, uh, attachment, you know, like, like you said, you're, you 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 grew up on the farm, you were familiar with hunting deer and, you know, it was like a normal thing. And even so, for you, it, you, 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 you talk about the book, in the book about this emotional conflict uh, about the hunting of these other animals. So now you can only imagine what's going on through the head of people who are not familiar with the hunting, right? They, they're living mm-hmm. in a city and they're, you know, even surprised that hunting is still going on, right? So uh, yeah. why, is, why is so? Like, what is, is it because we are not familiar with those animals or maybe we are you know too familiar almost with those animals and and too familiar i'm I'm saying like you know like for example in in ireland even you know if you ask kids in school you know like name one animal they're not gonna name pine martin they will go elephant or (laughs) you know Uh i i think it is maybe a little bit of both i mean in one sense we're familiar with them the idea of them but we don't have them in our backyard. We're not living with, you know, five ton elephants, you know, destroying our crops and that kind of thing. So we're, even though we're familiar with them, we're, we're familiar with the idealized part of them, I guess. And we have to look at them realistically and what, it, what it's like to live with them from the viewpoint of the people on the ground. So no different than us here in, um, America, if you have a farm and you have way too many deer, you know, they give out certain permits, you know, there's to control the population, to control the crops. Well, um, deer aren't an elephant or a lion or a leopard. So it's um, definitely a different thing. But I think we just, I, I think 
in some ways we're it is because we're familiar but in, but not familiar with the reality of them if that mm -hmm. makes any sense yeah it does it does i i i, th I think you're right i think you're right What was your your like most memorable encounter with the with these animals? I, I guess the most memorable thing. I don't know if you call this an encounter, but it was the cries of the night. Mm -hmm. um, laying in your tent, and we're literally way out in remote Tanzania, where we had to take a bush plane, a two and a half hour bush plane to get there. We were sixteen hour drive from the nearest village or nearest city, and four hours from the nearest village. So we were way out there, and you're in a tent. And you hear the cries of the, the cries of the savannah, as the mm. book is called. But you hear the lions and the hyenas and the monkeys and the hippos. There was a hippo pool about 300 yards away. So you could hear them bellowing at night. And you could hear the um, elephants once in a while. They didn't go through every night, but you could hear them go through and hear them gurgling sound. And it was just amazing. Every night was, I call it the African symphony, because every night was a little different. You know, it, we would wake up in the morning and be so excited to hear what did you hear last night and, and it was terrifying but yet it was amazing and enlivening at the same time you just you felt it sounds corny maybe but you felt so alive sitting sitting there listening to those sounds even though you were terrified i can only imagine uh how how what but you know I, i remember from my own experience which is like a tiny you know in comparison but when i was uh, on a fishing trip in in africa it, it was like a uh what i what i remember we arrived Um, at, at, it wasn't even the fishing lodge. It was it was just a, like a stopover, but first night in Africa, and we were absolutely knackered. And at first, like you said, when I woke up in the morning and I heard birds, and my first thought, like, well, like I'm definitely not in Europe. Like it definitely doesn't sound <laughs> like anything I, I know. And it was only birds, so I just couldn't imagine, yeah. like you know, like a lions and all these beasts. It's like, oh my. God, <laughs> the, the hyenas kind of went all night long from the moment you went in and they have like 11 different sounds. So it was just amazing listening to these different sounds. And then the lions, we called it the bewitching hour because usually around 2 a.m. is when the lions started. or That's when we woke up anyway. Uh -huh. You know, we would be so exhausted. We'd kind of fall asleep a little bit. It was hard to fall asleep, but you'd fall asleep. And then around two, um, all of a sudden you'd hear the lions roaring and, you know, grunting back and forth. And then, you know, anyway, that was, wow. I called it the B because after that it was hard to sleep. Right. <laughs> did you, did you get, did you get used to in any, any, any way throughout the three weeks? Because I presu presume like, a, uh, initially it was terrifying. Like, Oh my God, there's a lion out there. I think it was like in the beginning of the book, you're describing that, but is, was that, was that, did that went away as Wait, I, I don't think, the excitement never goes away and the fear is always a little bit there, but at the same time you're looking forward to it. So it's kind of a weird thing because if I didn't hear lions, I was disappointed. I mean, I, I, mm. I wanted to hear them every night and, you know, and I just, I loved looking forward to what we were going to hear at night. So I don't know if you ever really get over it or I didn't in that amount of time, but mm. you know, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a little bit like, uh, I was asking my friend who was uh, in in Australia for many years, and he was telling me how terrified he was on, of spiders and snakes and so on. And I asked him, you know, like, did you get used to that? And and he said, like, I don't know if you can ever get used to that. At least not in the four years I was there. So <laughs> he was never. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Like in the book, as you know, I was scared to death of the idea of spiders and snakes getting in our tent. Yeah. So when I saw that um, zippered. Um, the sides were zippered to the bottom mm -hmm. 
and the snakes couldn't get in where we were sleeping. I mean, I literally almost got down on the floor and kissed it. I mean, I was so excited <laughs> because I was used to going elk hunting with Rick where critters can crawl under the tent. Mm-hmm. You know, they can get in there. You wake up with mice there or we found a snake under the, you know, the cot one time. But at least there with those zippers, unless I was stupid enough not to zipper my door, mm-hmm. we at least didn't have to worry about snakes and spiders inside the tent anyway. It's safe to say that you're like a seasoned outdoors person right you were you were uh camping uh with your husband because he, he's a um seasoned hunter right so you were you were Correct. no stranger to deer camps and being out in the wilderness and and so on and even though you were had those experiences it it seemed like Africa was totally different level. It, it is a different level. You know, I never hunted when my growing up with my brothers. It was always like by time I saw the meat, it was hanging in the garage, you know, ready for processing. But when I married Rick, I started going on the hunts with him. And I found that I just loved being on the hunts. I love the outdoors. I love the adventure, the the challenging yourself because wherever he was going, I was going. Mm. So it was a challenge to me too. And I love that. Um, but Africa was definitely a different kind of situation because I mean, let's face it in North America, there's very few animals that are going to really kill you. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> but I mean, they can, of course, but not when you're, I guess, bears, yes, and depending where you are. Rattlesnakes warn you. I mean, we, yeah. we have a lot of rattlesnakes in our Canyon and they at least like, say hello. I mean, they shake their little tail mm. usually and let you know they're there. But, um, but in Africa, what the thing that helped a little bit was I was always fourth in line. And that was another thing that my favorite things in Africa was the going on the hunts itself. Um, the tracking part of it, mm-hmm. watching those trackers and these Tanzanians do their thing is just simply amazing. I mean, they are just so skilled and so knowledgeable. It was just, I can't tell you how much respect I have for, for them, but I would love to, but I was always fourth in line. It was always Raphael, Rick, then the head tracker, Gogo, and then me. And so I always kind of felt, I told myself this, that by time it got to me, the snakes were probably gone. Mm. So since I was fourth in line, so that was my, um, justification of the snake fear. And as far as the other animals, I just, even after the first day, I had so much confidence in Raphael and Gogo that, um, I guess felt like they had my back. I mean, I was still scared and I was still wary, but I, I was able just to enjoy the experience without, you know, thinking a Cape Buffalo is going to, you <sighs> know, sneak up on me and, you know, slam me. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you found your comfort in the, in the way you were moving. And, and then I, I, I guess the, the longer you're embedded in that environment, then, then those fears kind of, go away a little bit I, i guess yeah they did a little bit because first of all we didn't actually as much as i was afraid of snakes we didn't actually see any mm. while i was there mm-hmm. um we smelled one apparently because apparently black mamba smell like rice oh. but um yeah that's what Raphael taught us anyway our professional hunter but um so yeah i kind of got where i just loved being out there i just loved um I loved seeing how close we, you know, and you have to understand just because you're going after an animal doesn't mean you get it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we did a lot of track and a lot of on the ground stuff. And I just love that. I mean, so many times you'd get so close and then the guinea fowls would give you away or the heart beast would see you and, mm-hmm. and, you know, then the zebras would go running and it was just 
but I loved it. I love that part of it, that being on the ground with the animals and trying to sneak to get close to them. That was really exciting for me. I didn't care if we ever got a shot, to be honest. I was just happy being there. Yeah. yeah. And to be on the ground. Yeah. So you were, you were not hunting it? No, I was not hunting, no. Right, 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 right. And I did have an issue. It was hard because, like I said, I had these mixed feelings. But um, so there were a lot of tears. But um, I also came to understand how much um, sacrifice is needed. I mean, the sacrifice of, of a few well-chosen old males allows many more animals to live, you know, by protecting their habitat and, you know, and giving um, local people a reason to protect them and put placing a value on them. So I, I kind of learned that as I went from a lot. I learned a lot from Lillian. Um, Lillian was our game scout who they assign a Tanzanian game scout with every hunting party. And she is not affiliated with hunting party in any way. So that's probably by design so that they don't get too cozy. But Lillian was a 23 year old young female, um, spoke pretty darn good English uh, we just really, she was assigned to go with us. She, that was her first day at camp too. She had never met any of these people, just like I had never met any of these. Tw we had 21 people taking care of us. Right. So 21 um, in the camp. 21 people taking care of four of us. Yeah. Oh, wow. We're pretty, we're pretty spoiled. And I never thought of myself as high maintenance, but um, apparently we're high maintenance compared to <laughs> you know I me mean? because they had to, uh, I mean, all of our water for showers came out of a little hole in the ground, like about a three-foot hole in the ground. That all had to be scooped out, carried to a fire, heated over fire, carried up a ladder, put in a tank. Wow. Um, yes. It was, I'm, I'm telling you, it was, it was just so eye-opening. And once I found that out, of course, my showers got very short and I skipped when I could. But um, yeah, once you learn what is involved in the simple things that we take for granted, yeah, I mean, because it was the dry season, so they were scooping it out of a, they would dig a hole in the sand bed of the riverbed, and water would seep up, and so they would get that there, and that's where they washed our clothes, um, and every, you know, that's where they got all their water. This is a, a reoccurring theme uh, when, when I talk about Africa and people uh, who came back from Africa, like how many things we're taking for granted. You know, if you flip the switch and there's a light coming on and you don't even think you're expecting this thing to, to go well, well, um, people, you know, they have to deal with, with all these things. Plus, like I mentioned, um, human wildlife conflict is a serious thing because, uh, maybe we start with, uh, even tetsi flies. Can you just, how do this is this is probably one of the <laughs> mo most annoying things. Like when I think, oh, you know, I, I want to go to Africa one one day, uh, in you know, and and the time when I was on the, on this fishing trip, it was like really you know nice because uh, we spent most of the time on the on the island, twenty miles offshore, salt water, so we didn't even have mosquitoes, malaria carrying mosquitoes. Never mind anything else. So that doesn't count. <laughs> While well, you've been like in the, you, you got the <laughs> best I got in the air full quote deal. of this. And it's so funny because you hear these, you hear people talk about tsetse flies, but until you experience them, you can't even really believe it because they're little, they're smaller than our house flies, but they're, they 
pack a wallop of a punch and um, they just really sting and hurt and they can go through several layers of fabric and they don't die. I call them miniature vampires with wings because they suck the blood out of you, but they won't die. So um, they're just crazy. But that is one of the reasons, you know, and this came, I actually didn't learn this till I did my research, but tsetse flies, we can thank for large parts of Africa being wild because, um, because where tsetse flies are, they aren't, they can't have horses and a lot of cattle because that trichinopsis and and all that, um, kills them. So tsetse flies as nasty as they are, are responsible for large parts of Africa being still remaining wild. It's also one of the reasons why hunting tourism is so important because, you know, general tourists, they want to go to national parks where, you know, there, there aren't tsetse flies and there's tons of wildlife and it's pretty and there's infrastructure and they have hotels and they have all these things where, hunting tourism gets these areas that photo or general tourists typically aren't interested in. I mean, typical tourists don't want to deal with these tsetse flies. They don't want to deal with, um, you know, their shower water coming out of a little hole in the ground. They, they don't want to deal with, you know, we saw a lot of animals, but not near what you would see in a tourist area, not, not near what you would see at the Serengeti or something. And then just traveling to where we are, it was so remote. It's, it's easier for a photo tourist to land in Arusha and within five to eight hours, I think they have six or seven national parks they could go to. So that's why, that's probably the main thing I learned aside from human wildlife conflict. But the main thing is just how important hunting is to preserving habitat um, for all species. You touch on very on, on very important point. Um, so uh, you, you know, usually in those conversations, there's so many things that I would like to take that conversation. So I don't even know where to go. But let's let's stick with a with a hunting tourism, because I think this is um, uh, quite often the argument that is made by uh, opponents of hunting uh, or anti hunting or people who are not you know looking. Uh, favorably at hunting, let's say uh, that. Oh, I think it can be replaced with uh, photo tourism. Um, and and you you touch on one one important aspect of it that, well, number one, there's sheer numbers, right, of tourists, and and then they're expecting a lodge, four star, five star lodge, cold drinks. Well, you folks, you were you were you get pretty rough conditions even though yeah, you had I mean, 21 for, people looking after you <laughs> well it's it so funny because some people might, might consider what we did really rough in it there was no swimming pool there was no spas there was no <laughs> none of that there was no tv there's none of that but for me coming from elk camp it was actually pretty cushy because i didn't have to cook the meals i had a shower at elk camp i was i did the um you know, the sponge down bath. I mean, we didn't have a shower at elk camp. And um, so in some ways it was very cushy for me, but for most um, general tourists, I I don't think it would appeal to everyone, you know, that they, they, they prefer much more than that because it's hot and it's, I mean, there's, you know, there's, I don't understand. Why would you go to Africa and expect pool and all that? <laughs> it's like it's not the it's not the experience. <laughs> no, but it's not the because I got to sit by a water hole. Like when we did go in for lunch, sometimes after the first few days, we would go back for lunch and we would sit at the dining hut. And the dining hut was positioned above the 
the riverbed, which there was just a few puddles left in this riverbed. But one of these puddles was where all the animals came to drink. So I got to sit there and I would, the other guys would take a nap, but I didn't want to miss a second. So I would sit there and watch those animals come in and just, it was, it was fabulous. And we were on the state, um, the border of the Ruaha National Park. So actually, which I, this is another thing I learned. They place hunting concessions to go encircle these national parks purposely. So it adds another buffer zone for, for um, poachers. Poachers have to get through the hunting concessions to get to the national parks. And they don't like to operate where there's hunters and the guides and all these people with guns. So um, it's another layer of protection. Plus it's also overflow for the parks, you know, once those animals overflow. But yeah, so that that was like this magical line was the river and anything on that river and across was totally safe. You know, there was, it was out of, and anything at camp anyway, where there was an unspoken thing that anything at camp was, was, it was like a safe haven camp was. But, um, but so that was pretty, like we would be, one time we were stalking a Cape Buffalo, for instance, and after two or three hours, it crossed that magical line and it was just, that was it. Oh, it was man, done. I was so, enjoying that, that, those descriptions of a, of a Cape Buffalo, uh, stalk, man, it's, uh. It's a, it's a dream hunt. But yeah, you know, like this is, uh, a, a, again, we're going to come back to tourists in a second. But one thing that I would like to comment here that it's quite clear uh, for anyone who reads your book is that uh, quite often people have this con conception that those those ugly trophy hunters, right? They, they just shooting everything they're going to lie their eyes on. While this is uh, like a lot of, you know, outside of the rules that are, You, you know, like I said, you, you had a, like effectively government official with you. Exactly. Making making sure that everything is according to a law and so on. And there's a lot of uh, rules and regulations. And that's why you have PH who can, you know, assess the animal. With that. And, and again, you know, like it's fantastic to have these conversations and, 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 and have the books like these and, and spread that information because very often it's like, Oh, they you're just gonna go for the biggest one. And like, no, there's like the whole, you know, body of knowledge and experience, incredible experience required to actually pick the animal that is a legal animal. Yeah, it's really, um, I mean, there are exceptions in certain areas where maybe they're calling, they have too many of an animal or something. But in general, um, you, they're, they're seeking animals that are past breeding age. So they're speaking, seeking older males that necessarily doesn't even have to do with the horn size. It has to do with how old an animal is. So just for instance, um, we were had been pursuing a kudu. We had followed them quite a ways. Then we... Rick was actually on the sticks, um, had him in his sights. And then Raphael at the last minute said, no, he's not old enough. So in this, this kudu's horns were 48 inches long. So when you compare that to what we know in America, that was honking huge, but it, <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't mature enough. He thought it needed another three or four years before he would be harvestable. So you got to, I mean, at first, of course, you're kind of, Rick was disappointed, but then at the same time, you're just, it just proves everything we learn that it's more about the age of the animal, you know? So just back that up. And, and like I said, I'm not saying everything's perfect. I'm not saying that they don't have exceptions in different countries. Every, you know, sometimes, like I said, there is, um, they have to 
harvest different animals for different reasons. But all in all, that's the that's how it works. Yeah, and look, look, there's always cyclists who are gonna run the red light, but that doesn't mean that all cyclists run the red lights. They usually pretty pretty disciplined bunch, right? And so I, I guess that's a that's just just the nature of of life that people who are against something they're gonna pick the worst example of that something they're against is like oh everybody is like that was like you said there are even like a unspoken rules like oh in the camp you know everything goes in the camp we're not choosing this thing. which which was um uh yeah very very uh good to read about it and and again uh it's a first-hand experience uh that that you're relying to to readers um i want to go back to a second to the to the um tourists as well tourism uh, photo tourism and explore the idea whether photo tourism can replace hunting in terms of you know dollars and so on and so forth and protection of the wildlife. Would you agree that also a you know sheer footfall is a problem? There's like a lot of these people. You know, I, I see photographs and I see um, basically. Land Rovers or Land Cruisers, bumper to bumper to bumper to bumper, packed with people, and then lions are eating zebra, whatever. And you know, I look at it and it's like, how these lions are wild? They're they're anything but wild. They're just so accustomed to cars and everything. There's no wilderness. You know, we we need both types of tourism. I don't ever want to say that one should go for the other, but that's what I want people to understand. We need photo tourism in the places that it will work, and we need hunting tourism in the other places. But you're right. Um, if people are thinking they're going to go to a hunting habitat and animals are going to stand around and let you watch them eat a zebra, uh, you, you're, you've got another thing coming. I mean, the, I, I had very few pictures of animals while I was over there. All I got was their butts because as soon as they heard the, the um, Land Cruiser, they were gone. Um, that's why, of course, you have to get into stalking and tracking. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a whole different concept. I think, a lot of, I think that's another one of the misconceptions. You know, you think you're going to go to Africa and these animals are all just going to be standing there as you drive by and it's going to be a shooting gallery. <laughs> You know, because that's what we see on TV. We see the lions sitting there eating the zebra. We see those, you know, the all the animals just standing there as tourists go by with tons of vehicles there. It's not like that in a hunting concession. They know they're being hunted. When they hear that vehicle, they know what that means. And so um, it's a whole different ball game. And, uh, but yeah, you're right. There's way less stress on the environment. It takes 100 to pay for from 16 to 1600 photo tourists. I mean, that's wow. the difference. And, you know, of course, it depends. And it's Africa is a big place. So it just depends where they're at and what the model is. But essentially, it's, it's an undisputed fact that um, hunting brings in way more money with way less um, stress on the environment. You know, you, do, you, you don't need these fancy lodges. Um, you don't need your beds changed every night. Um, and they're usually at that camp and they stay at that camp the whole time. Photo tourists, usually they stay somewhere two days, they move on, stay somewhere else two days, they move somewhere else, stay two days. And then, so you know what I mean? It's just a much more stress on the ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Even even uh, taking into account the, the, you know, animals that will be removed from the ecosystem, even with that, especially when we talk about, you know, carbon footprint and, and all that. Mm -hmm. You know, sheer number 
of uh, of of people that <laughs> yeah let's talk about human animal human wildlife conflict um so i want to for one second come back to tetsi fly because okay. yeah how do you <laughs> how do you protect yourself from these, these oh. because the biggest thing like a biggest thing is like i don't know but i don't think that i would be so concerned well probably i would once i'm there about them being bitten but they're carrying this disease which is is that disease st- no there is still uh, there is a treatment for that disease is a sleep there is. Sick, s- sleeping sickness sleeping right. sickness yeah if you catch it um you know quickly if you you know you definitely um can be treated um fortunately i have to admit that when i was over there i didn't know it carried sleeping i just thought they were annoying bugs i didn't know that the- <laughs> So I don't know, no one told me or I didn't know, but, you know, like I said, I just went there. I was naive about a lot of things. So I learned that after the fact, but, um, but, you know, we had repellent on and you wear a lot of thick clothes. And then when I was on, I found that when I, I kept a blanket, um, that they had given me a Maasai blanket. I kept that in the vehicle. And so I would put that around me and on me when the, cause weird, the flies are weird. You would, you would go maybe an hour with no TC flies. And then you would drive through something and all of a sudden you were just hit with them. And so I would just kind of cover up and then the trackers and they'd be back, they'd be hitting you with sticks, the branches trying to get them off of you. And you were just, <laughs> it was like, oh man, it was everybody in for it, just trying to get through. And then like maybe in 10 minutes, they were gone again. So um, it was just weird. They're just weird. I don't. And what was that? What was the reason they were on and off? What like, was it like they were just keeping to the area or like, do you know? I think it's more brushy areas from what I've understood. Oh, it's okay. the brushier areas. Um, and where there's more animals, because that's what they feed off of. So I think it has a lot to, but to be, to be honest with you, I didn't see a rhyme or reason to it. I learned out later that it was brushy areas and else, but to me, it just seemed very random, but maybe I was too busy fighting them off to really notice what kind of territory, you know, what kind of terrain we were in right at the time. Yeah, there, there is uh, there you there is a part in the book when you describe like everybody was slapping each other and it was like total mayhem. Yeah, the first time they started hit me across the back with a with a branch, <laughs> I was like, "What?" And then I'm like, "Okay, they know me well enough." And then I realized what they were doing, you know. But it was just like craziness. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're, oh, they're quite entertaining, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. What I gather from from the book, you know, even though you had a you know clothes and. Uh, repellent like a chemical repellent all these this this almost no effect no i mean if they can find a piece of skin they're going to get to it and this repellents didn't seem to do a lot it was more of the layers that you had to have on right. um that's why um well you will see like it's so weird because it was so hot there but you will see with the tanzanians with in my pictures with lots of clothes on but it was <laughs> to ward off the tsetse flies um <laughs> so yeah, yeah so it was kind of um so Dude, layers yeah. is more important than anything i think i don't know and i'm no expert by any means but that's just kind of well, what you I are learned. you you wrote you wrote a book about it so you are <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listen no but uh, you know i I just want to stress again um how much research went into this book and and even for people who are not familiar with the uh american model of wildlife conservation you also uh uh write in 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 length in uh about about you know uh pitman robertson act and all the you know how the how all these things work uh and, and comparing that to to africa 
Um, listen, so continue on the on the human wildlife conflict. What you know, like, were you aware of of uh, of the issues related to human wildlife conflict, or was it like a particular moment that you're, you know, it was this moment like, oh, I didn't realize it, it was a. It was a particular moment, I would say, because I don't think I had a clue. I don't think I'd ever really, I hate to say that, I hate to admit it, but I never really thought about what the people, was like for the people living with these animals that we adore from afar. But um, my first awakening to that was we had found some elephant bones and Lillian and I were talking about it and we were talking about poachers and that brought up this whole thing. You know, Americans seem to think that poaching when they think of poaching they think of rhino poaching and poaching for elephant tusks but there's so many different kinds of poaching and um she you know there's honey poaching wood poaching bush meat poaching all those kind of poaching and then as we got into those subjects she also taught me that the biggest killer of um lions and leopards are local people through human wildlife conflict. They don't want to live with these animals. And she's the one who explained to me, because I, I still at that point wasn't totally on board with why we should hunt leopards and, you know, lions. But Lillian, who is a game scout, um, she explained to me by putting a high value on those animals, it gives the reason the people a reason to work harder to protect those animals or to learn how to live with those animals. It might give them a reason to build bomas and bring their cattle in at night rather than just leaving them wild. It might bring them uh, to change their, their, um, their chore patterns to the safest time of day. Um, so human wildlife conflict is a major thing that you, that we just don't even think about. I mean, and this is a, this is a small minor thing, but one day we were going back to camp and we, come across, here we are in the middle of nowhere, and we come across three Tanzanians. And of course, everybody got ready. We thought they were poachers and, you know, Lillian and Raphael. And then we saw they had no rifles and we stopped and talked. And here they were trying to get medicine. They, somewhere were at a camp five miles away. And later I just said to Raphael, I said, why would they have walked in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day? Why didn't they come in the morning or the afternoon? And, um, and without even skipping a beat so nonchalantly he said well it's the safest time of day to walk because the lions are napping i mean mm. that's that's a mild statement technically but that hit me like a ton of bricks i mean to have to plan your whole day and your chores and everything about when the safest time of day is um you know i, I don't know if listeners know but about it's probably been about four months now but three young tanzanians were killed um they were out. They were they were after tending their family's cattle, four brothers, and the lions killed and ate three of them. And wow. the one little boy was able to escape to the tree, and he was injured, but he survived. So, but he had to watch three of his brothers get eaten by lions. Wow. So, um, this is the kind of the reality of things that they have to deal with, and. You can see why poisoning and killing, I mean, that's the number one, people don't realize it, but that's the number one death to, to carnivores is poisoning. And that in turn kills every other animal that feeds upon it. But yeah, it's, they don't have guns there. Most rural Africans don't have guns. So they kill when they have animals, they kill randomly. Um, 
they uh, just put poison out and kill whatever carnivores. It doesn't matter. They're young, old, babies, pregnant. It doesn't matter. So that's where most of the carnivore deaths occur. And that's why you have to make it every bit, make them very valuable because they will, um, yeah. you know, for those old males, by making them very valuable, they'll work, they'll work harder to try to alleviate the dangers and live with those dangers. Yeah, like someone said that if you're if 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 there was those animals don't have a value uh, through you know hunting or tourism or or any other way, their value is negative to these people. They have a negative value because they are destroying crops. Like in term in 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 case of uh, uh, elephants, like you know the the whole situation in Botswana, or or like you said, it it's just you have to deal with you know death of your family members or your neighbors whether from crocodiles or 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 lions or anything else and uh, these are not things that many people you know willing to rub their head around um i think a lot of these 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 you know uh people who are expressing those opinions are don't spend you know any time thinking about it It's just very like very simplistic. Oh, it's a beautiful lion and should live there because it's there. Like, well, you know, we have a problem. Like, if, if the seagulls are picking chips from people on the beach, you know, there's a, like, oh, we need to call seagulls and right. And here you deal with a crocodile or lion that can eat you. Yeah, I think, and I think once people learn, because I really truly believe all in all, most people are really. Um, are in it for the right reason. I, I think there are a few of these organizations that spread the misinformation and stuff that are in it for the wrong reasons. But I, I believe the people in the middle really are in it for the right reason. And I think if they understood that they would come around, I think if they understood the, the, that you have to, the people have to benefit from wildlife protection and wildlife conservation and you, you can't, um, People, animals can't thrive unless people thrive. So um, I, I really think if people understood, they would be, they could open their mind to it. Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a, that's a big problem because, a lot, uh, you know, we, we even had that conversation not long ago on the podcast that quite often people kind of, you know, hang their identity over something, right? And then if, if someone identifies as an animal rights activist, It's very hard to get that person to listen and 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 to be open to to ideas, right? So you always kind of um, targeting in the air quote those people who are in the middle who are willing to listen and say like, well, I'm not sure about that. Um, and and you know, I see the I see the power how this works. You know, I um, it was a, probably two years ago where my friend who is like. He has no interest in hunting. He's no, you know, like he works in IT. He works in as a security consultant, and and all of a sudden it was on, you know, on on Facebook or on Twitter, he reposts and retweets something about you know, ban trophy hunting, this and that. Right, <laughs> and I was I'm surprised because like he like does like what the heck? So I message him. It's like, hey, do you do you even know? And I sent him an article in the, in a in a. Uh, one of the magazines that explains, you know, uh, in the layman terms, um, what we talk about here. 
And he goes like, oh, I didn't know. I was just, it was, you know, it was like, I was so, you know, pity for, for those poor animals, <laughs> right? And, that, and, and I, I kind of feel like I caught him in the, just in the right moment <laughs> because it was like, it was this moment when he was ready to go down the rabbit hole of those, of those poor animals being killed by those, you know, bloodthirsty psychopaths, right? It was like, oh, no, stop. That's how it looks like. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's very important. And which brings me to, to, to another question for you um, about the audience of your book and, and, uh, and the reception of your book. Because I presume that a lot of um, people who are in the hunting community, let's say, uh, hunters, they, uh, they will love your book. Like, I love your book. It's, it's great. And, you know, uh, like I said on the, on the, on the, on the top of the show in the introduction that if, if I were to recommend one book that covers the biggest spread of issues and experiences that that's the book, that's your book because oh, thank you. Yeah, ab absolutely. And again, I'm, I'm, I was truly, uh, amazed at the, at the details in the research that you went into. That was not like, oh, this is what happened, this is what I've seen, but you, you gave a big background. So it gives you, like, on one hand, story, which is always the best thing to tell the story, but then as a part of that story, people can can learn a lot of things. So, uh, but, you know, as usual in those things, like the hunting community is like a little bit preaching to the choir. A lot of people know these things. They're gonna pick out the, the bits. You know, I I pick a lot. I, I knew a lot of things that you write, but but I also pick a lot of bits that I didn't know. You know about the black rhino and the white rhino, about the you know how their mouth is built. And it's like very detailed information you have there. I I just loved it. Um, but you know how to get to people who are not hunting. Like they're they're those in the, in the middle, right? Because and and did you? Uh, got any feedback? I presume there was a, probably also a bit of criticism. But do, do you do you feel like you're getting into those people who are in the middle or who are not interested? I feel I, I I'll be honest with you. I I kind of need the help of hunters to get it out into the world because um, once non-hunters read it, you know, people in the middle, that 80% in the middle, once they read it, they're kind of blown away by what they learn because they had no clue. Their, their hearts are in the right place, but they just had no clue. So it's making a huge difference. And I've even changed a few anti-hunters minds. Now, granted, they only read the book because they either knew me or they knew somebody who recommended it to them. Because I, I went to a book, book club one time, for instance, and a bunch of Seattle realtors. And, um, they love the book, had a totally new concept of sustainable use. They even look at mounts on the wall differently, thinking, oh, my, they're honoring animal. It's a memory. They don't look at them evil anymore. But when I asked them if they would have picked up the book on their own, they admitted they wouldn't have. Because as soon as they saw hunting in the description, um, so... I kind of need hunters to help me get it out there, really, to be honest. I, I talked to a marketing guy. I'm new at all this. So he said, you need, to, you need to get it in the hands of hunters and let them get it into the hands of the people who they know that need to read it. So um, I'll tell you one of the most rewarding things. I was on Facebook, and a man, a hunter who had read it, uh, was having a discussion with someone about hunting, and he 
recommended that she read my book. He said, I really want you to read Sue Tidwell's book. And so that was to me, okay, that's exactly what I need, you know? So, but, um, because it is changing the minds of people once they read it. And, and that was my intent. Like I didn't really gear it towards hunters. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know what I was doing when I did this, but I just knew I wanted to reach people, but, um, I didn't know that hunters would enjoy it because I thought maybe it's not hardcore hardcore hunting enough, but it turns out all the hunters are loving it too. Um, the ones that have read it or the ones that have reached out to me anyway. And, um, they of course like the message and then non hunters are just e even housewives, mother, everybody that once they get it in their hands are enjoying it. So it's a trial and error. <laughs> yeah. And it, listen, uh, I, I think that uh, you, you know, a lot of my listeners and viewers is, you know, I, I always say that with my podcast, with every episode, I have a, like a half of my audience upset because, you know, I either, either have an episode about hunting and then the non-hunting part is upset. And then I have an episode about, you know, rewilding or about some, you know, conservation efforts. And then some, you know, people from the hunting quarters comes like, oh, these guys. You know. <laughs> so, uh, but so I, I think that, it's a perfect opportunity to talk with you about this book because uh, I, I think that safely, safely, uh, people from both sides uh, of of my listeners and viewers can 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 pick up that book. And you know, I never had that exp you know this feeling that it was like a hunting or geared toward geared towards hunters, especially that you're very. Um, from the very beginning, you're you're quite open about your conflicting emotions. That you're not really um, that keen of like, well, you know, kudu or antelopes were they kind of like deer, but you know those lions and leopards and the, the charismatic megafauna. You, you were quite open that this is not something that you were um, comfortable with. How how are you now? Are you more comfortable with? Are you still? Is is that still like you know like a uh, out of need, you will accept it, but you don't love it. I think I, I'm still emotional about it when it comes to the harvesting of an animal. Um, I don't know that I ever want to hunt myself at this point, but, um, but in my heart, I believe it is so important. So I'm totally on board with it now. I mean, I, I get why it's so important to the local communities and we have to give them a voice. I mean, for so long, we have all these people in the world trying to make decisions for the people of Africa for what works for them. And it's, it's not right. It's not fair. And this is one of my ways is trying to give them a voice, um, in, in a fun way. Like I, I really tried to make the book fun so that it just doesn't overwhelm readers that I make it, you know, weave in stuff as I learned myself. But, um, but no, I wouldn't say I have any qualms about it now, but that doesn't mean I'm still don't get emotional about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. of course I want it to be ethical. I'm all for ethical hunting, but you know. How do you see the proportional, how much of that hunting concession and licensed hunting, how much this is, this is driven uh, really like a, you know, uh, grassroots movement, like a people of Africa who wants to set it up this way and how much of it is this, you know, uh, rich white guy comes in and throws around his money. And so of course those poor people will go with what he says to do because he got money. Do you see that, that balance? How, 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 you know, curious of your, uh, view on this. From my, from my take on it, 
um, from, from, from what I've learned from the African people that I've met is, you know, the, those animals are going to die anyway, and they're going to eat, you know, they get all the meat and that protein, which is highly needed in those areas. What do they care if a hunter takes home the horns and the skin? They don't, they don't need the horn and the skin, but they do need that meat. But if somebody, are they going to go out and, and that's the thing with poaching, there's no limits. So they'll just, they, they don't have, you got to remember they're, most of Africa, most people don't have guns. So when they go to kill an animal, they just set a snare and it captures anything in its way. It can be a baby, a pregnant mom. A, I mean, it doesn't matter. And, and it might not even be the targeted animal. Like a lot of lions die from snares that were intended for kudu, for instance, So, um, or for an antelope. So um, these animals are going to die anyway to, for, to get protein. So but they're not making any extra if they kill it. But now if a person comes and pays money to come over there, they're, they're giving that money to the community, you know, certain parts of it, you know, it's all split up and it's different for every country, of course, but um, they still get the meat and the hunter gets to take home the skins and the horns. And, and from my understanding of it is they don't care about that. They don't care about the horns and the skins. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And plus the the aspect that we, we kind of like alluded to, but never like specifically said that the habitat protection is probably the biggest aspect of it. I think you have a you have a picture in a book where, where you can see that the boundary where you have a fields and and the land where people are farming and then habitat and that habitat is a concession. Um and, and, and this is I, I guess bit that people often miss that it's not so much one or another animal that counts it's the habitat it's where the opportunity for these animals to live uh, in, in you know breed and <laughs> reproduce and replenish and then when you you know in a in a controlled way or in a, even in a sustainable way remove the animal from the habitat it's it's not a big deal from the perspective, like those animals as a species will continue and then they have a habitat. Well, you know, a lot of people think of poaching or hunters or all this as the number one threat to wildlife. The number one threat to wildlife throughout the world is habitat loss. So anything you can do to preserve habitat in its natural form is a good thing. Because even if you're protecting a lion in that habitat or a kudu, you end up protecting everything that's in that habitat. You know, and I, I like to compare it to, you, you have to make that land valuable or give it a purpose. So say you, you have this expanding population and they're where that line I was telling you about where, you, you know, you saw the ranches and the farms. Now, if they weren't making any money from this hunting concession, that land was just basically sitting there. Um, they would want to make it useful. So if there wasn't hunting, cattle would start encroaching. They'd start plowing it under, um, they'd make it worthwhile. You would do the same thing if you owned hundred acres in, um, Idaho, where we're at, for instance, if you have a hundred acres and it's just sitting there and you're paying taxes on it and you have to live, you're going to make that hundred acres. You're either going to put it in wheat ground, you're going to make it pasture or, Hey, if you can raise some, you know, white tailed deer on there. Well, in our case, mule deer, if you, you can raise some and you can hunt, them sustainably, you might keep that habitat natural. So, 
you know, you, you gotta, it, the habitat has to pay for itself, if that makes sense, or the animals have to pay for themselves. No, for sure. For sure. In, <laughs> yeah. When you talk about it and when you witness that it's, it's so much makes sense, but then, you know, I, I, I'm just wondering, like, it's quite often where people say, oh, this is very complex. And I was in that camp as well, because I, I kind of went through this journey, right? Like, oh, It's simple, right? Everybody wants to. Everybody wants conservation. Everyone wants protects animals. It's simple, right? And then it's like, oh no, it's so fast because there are things like poaching, like animal, human wildlife conflict, this, 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 this. So then I got fascinated, like how complex that picture is. But you know, the more I talk about this with people like you, it's like, eh, is it really that complex and nuanced? It, it, you know, it starts to be simple again it's like it's actually quite simple you need to have a protected land so you have an animals there and as long as you're not gonna take more than they're reproducing they're gonna be there like it's it's, it's, it's it simple. actually makes common sense like i say at one point in the book it really facts and statistics don't matter anymore um it's common sense once you really start thinking about these things and you relate it to your own life here or you relate it to how you would protect your kids or you want your kids to have a better life or once you start relating to things, it just makes common sense to me. We, we have plenty of, there's plenty of facts and statistics to back it up, but I don't, I think like you said, it's irrelevant, you know, anymore. Yeah. yeah. And another thing I want to say about Africa as far as, you know, it is complex in the fact that Africa's three times the size of America. It's huge. So you might have a shortage of elephants here, but like in Botswana and Zimbabwe, you have way too many elephants and they're destroying the habitat. So you can't apply a one size fits all to all of Africa. There are parts of Africa that, yeah, they need more wildlife. They need, you know, da, da, da. And then there are other parts where they're, they're eating themselves out of house and home and destroying habitat for every creature. So You know, elephants is a big one. Elephants is a big one because this is this is like, uh, yeah. Overall, you know, like overall, there's there's not that many left compared to what it was. But then you have those pockets where it's like it's bad for actually for those elephants as well. You know, and, and you know, I had on the podcast uh, Ron Thompson, and and he he was uh, you know laying out exactly the numbers and what needs to be done and, and, and all these things. And, and, and again, people kind of often can see past the fact of like, oh, this majestic animal is being killed. Like, yeah, but, but if you're not going to do that, then you have a, you know, elephant cough starving or, or left alone because, because the, uh, the, the mother, I, I think it's cow is called elephant cow needs to travel huge distance to the nearest uh, water source and that cough just simply cannot follow and therefore you know and he was saying like well yeah we you know 10 15 years ago we we never seen uh you know elephant calves on their own running around now we see that because of 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 these things so uh on one hand people may think like oh it's a, you know uh ethical and and welfare aspects but you know how ethical is it to let those you know baby animals die because there's this overpopulation and 
So, or die yeah. a sto- slow death of starvation, even even for the adults. I mean, you know, they they eat four to five hundred pounds of food a day, depending on their size. So that's a lot of food they have to take in. So you can see how an ecosystem could be devastated when you've got. Uh, and we're not talking about overpopulated by a few hundred. We're talking overpopulated by thousands and thousands in these areas. So as Ron Thompson would know, but um, you know, it's just. <sighs> Yeah, it's a slow, horrible death for these for these animals and the other animals that they're eating the food from. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a total mess to be honest with these this situations. Um, Sue, listen, uh, are you planning to come back to Africa? Yes, I am. Wow. You know that's the thing. You go to Africa once as a one. This was supposed to be our once in a lifetime experience. You can never go once. Don't ever think you're going to go once. Um, everybody so, says that. Like this oh. is like, like everybody's like no, no. There's like <laughs> I was talking with a with a hunter who's like he's a safe story. Like I'm going to go with this one hunt. Like tick all the boxes that I want on the list. And and he said like and the 20 years later, <laughs> still you know year after year kind of coming back. We saved. We sold all kinds of stuff to be able to go and. And, but yeah, now we've been saving again for years and we're going to go to Mozambique this time. Not that we didn't love Tanzania, but um, we just want to experience a different part of Africa and, you know, something different, which is going to be kind of hard because I'm not going to get to see Lillian and the people I met at Masimba camp. But you'd probably never be able to create that first experience again anyway. But um, anyway, but yeah, we are going back. Right, right. That's it. It is great. Is it going to be like part two to your book? Oh gosh, I don't know. This has been way harder than I ever thought. Um, the writing turns out to be the easy part. It's just the whole um, getting it out into the world and getting it known to people, and you know that that is that's it's difficult. So um, right. and I thought that you were going to say that the research so. was difficult. The difficult, yeah, that was a lot of, but I kind of enjoyed that part of it because I was learning and I was fascinated by it. Like I said, I would go down a rabbit hole. I would think, okay, I need to back this up what I learned. And then I'd be like, oh, and then I just kept learning and learning. But, um, so it was hard work, but I enjoyed that. It's, it's more this unknown to me, you know, this marketing world that's unknown that's that's but anyway so i don't know if i'll write another book or not but everybody keeps asking if i will <laughs> yeah you should you de- you de- you definitely should no i i think like you know like like you said the educational aspect of it is 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 very strong and is very needed it's badly needed um listen so just uh, you know uh, to to close off I, i just want your opinion on the you know, on the term trophy hunting. So obviously we understand the term trophy hunting, right? And, but do you feel like in a current, you know, climate, let's say climate and, and, and understanding, do you think that the term is, you know, become unhelpful and should be avoided? Or do you think that, no, the term is what it is and we should just educate people you know, what the term means. That's probably a little bit of both. I hate using the term because it has such negative connotations. And it's kind of sad when you think about it. Everything else in our world, you get a trophy for doing something and it's not looked at negatively. You know, you exactly. win a baseball tournament, you win a golf tournament, you get a trophy and it's like, oh yeah, you got a trophy. But in the hunting world, they've they've been able to put this negative thing 
on it. And for people who don't understand hunting, they don't understand that pose behind the animal with a smile. Um, once you go on a hunt and you're with that person and you see that they've worked 10 days or years or whatever, and you've dealt with all these things and you know, you see the work and the torment and the challenge that goes into it. So you understand that smile a little bit better. So I understand that smile, but people, other people don't, but I wish we would get to calling it selective hunting or conservation hunting. I wish we could come up with another name, but I don't know that the aunties will ever go on board with that. This is too um, helpful to their cause. The, yeah. the, the, you know, yeah, I know, I know. I like someone was saying tourist hunters, and I said like, no, that won't work because the, the shorthand is stealthy age. <laughs> <laughs> so selective hunting, I think, works because you are being very selective. You know, even if you're specifically out for a female that they need to call in that area or something. But um, and conservation hunting makes sense. But anyway, um, it's that's not for me to decide. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, part of me thinks like. Uh, Look, I, I, on a serious note, I I uh, am of the opinion that if the term is not helpful for the cause, it's better to stop using the term, and and you know because it's not helpful, and it's it's we're not here to force something on, especially that this is not not important really what we call it. But part of me thinks like you know if if we start using that term all the time. That could also work, you know, like with, because in fairness, if you go and and you hunt a deer, it's your trophy hunting. You 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 have your your trophy. You have that bone on the on the wall, or even in the freezer. And you know, before even I was, you know, I I I started hunting, uh, you know, relatively late. It's 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 relatively new to me. I was always uh, I was an angler and I was you know uh, fishing, and I, before I even was aware of the whole discussion about trophy hunting i was always saying like I, i'm after trophy fish and this is my you know trophy photo of the fish and like that that wasn't like all of a sudden you know trophy fishing is like oh you know what you're doing you have to trophy fish like yeah sure like you know i want a big one um so part of me is like well yeah let's start using that all the time <laughs> I, I even i even was uh, got a little bit of a flack on social media by calling birders you know the people who do bird watching that they doing like a trophy birding because they want this like one unique bird and something oh my god ah huh. what <laughs> that wasn't smart move yeah yeah I, I got the wrong side of a stick from birders for trophy birding anyway so um I was amazed too, like you said, about how many hunters don't even stand, understand hunting in Africa. I mean, really? yes. I mean, even oh. in America, they, in a way, were like me. They, they think it's, I don't mean they, when I say they, I don't mean everyone. I mean, but there are a lot of people in America that feel like, oh, that's just a bunch of rich people going over there and they don't understand trophy hunting either, but somehow they don't equate it to the fact that they're looking for a mature male to harvest in a deer. And that's also a trophy. It's, it's kind of weird, but um, that was interesting thing for me to learn that not everyone understands, not even hunters understand hunting in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's, there's probably this, this notion that you go to this wild country, wild wilderness, and you just walk around with a rifle and do what you want. Like, oh, this one. <laughs> it's like, it, no, 
no, no, no. Yeah, that's that's true. That's very true. That's why books like yours are are very important. And um, uh, look, so uh, tell us uh, where is the best way to you know how to how to how to get your hands on the book. What's the best way? And you know how to find more information about your work and what you do. Well, the best way, to, easiest way to get my book is just to go on Amazon. It's for sale all over the world. So um, it's just Cries of the Savannah, Sue Tidwell. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram, which is suetidwell.writer. I'm also on Facebook under Sue um, Tidwell under a business page, which shows about my, my posts. And on Instagram, you'll see a lot of um, – I post every day pretty much about animals and wildlife. So you'll learn a little tidbits Those are there. Fantastic photos, fantastic photos and videos. I really enjoy your Instagram page. Yeah, oh, well, yeah thank people. you. Go, go, go and give Sue a follow. Um, it's, it's well worthy. It's well worthy. Really, really. Uh, are these all of uh, photos that you took on your, on your trip? Some are, but to be honest, a lot of them aren't. I always give the, uh, the, um, photographer credit but like i said a lot of the animals for me were running away so i got butt shots <laughs> because we were hunting so my focus wasn't photography so we were you know the animals were always on the move so yeah I, a lot of times to teach somebody about like we were talking about the rhinos the difference in what how they eat and the different noses you know i borrow pictures from photographers and i always give them credit and most of them like it because you know they always reach out to me and because i give them notice to their page too so so yeah i can't take credit for all those photos a lot are mine um but a lot but of but you are. know like those 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 uh like i said but photos like to some extent they're to me like they're more valuable yeah like i remember from your book there's a there's a photo of an elephant in the long grass that is walking away and mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a fantastic photo because that's not the photo you see every day, because everybody wants like this big massive elephants with the tusks and a with a with a trunk raised or something you know big ears and so on and you know even if you're not a hunter and not the uh, you know interested in the in the wildlife in Africa you've seen you know hundreds of photos like that of an elephant so. Yet another photo of a massive elephant. But that photo is like very natural. Like, oh, that is, you know, that, that tells that story. Like you actually seen that and this is what you would expect what's happening. Elephant in the long grass and it goes like, oh, I'm out of here. And you just <laughs> manage to just snap like <laughs> on his way out. It was, I thought it was a fantastic photo. Well, great. I'm glad it. you liked it because I, I questioned putting that in there because I thought, well, I don't know if anybody's going to want to see the butt of an elephant, but it, it did speak to the story that this is what I saw. This was the... <laughs> So I, I love, I love, I love that. And you know, like I, like I said, it, it speak to me that this is authentic, authentic photo, right? Like I could, you know, I, I could even for this podcast, I can, you know, take a photo uh, of the stock website of a massive elephant, a beautiful photo, but like, yeah, you know, it's, it's probably taken from one of those, you know, uh, long line of land cruisers. All the pictures in the book are mine, other than the illustrations. And I did have to use, I had an illustrator because like I said, I didn't get good pictures of animals. So, um, but all the pictures in the book are mine. It's, it's on Instagram that I sometimes borrow pictures, well, except for the one from Amy Dickman and that habitat picture but most shout of the out pictures. to emmy dickman she was also a guest on our podcast so shout out Amy. Yeah, she's amazing isn't she yes 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 uh, and you know i i'm just 
blown away by her patience and you know the long debates that she has on on, on Twitter and like I'm not really on you know mainly on Twitter and and, and Instagram I'm not really Facebook uh, guy but she's she has such an amazing patience and explaining and like why well, you know how you do i was like how you do this emmy i wouldn't <laughs> seriously i'm, I I'm with you up. i tried twitter for a while and of course i was following amy and those and i would try to get involved in the conversations as well but they were so mean and so um hostile and the abuse she took as a non-hunting biologist was blew me away and I, I, I'm just, I'm like you, I'm in awe that she continues to fight the good fight because she takes a lot of abuse. I mean, I get some death threats and stuff and I get threats already, but already. Um, I mean, not nothing too major. I don't think, um, I, well, I mean, I mean, I just, I just kind of hope they're blown off steam and you yeah. know, somebody was going to shoot me from two kilometers away. But since we're in America, I assume that they're talking kilometers or another country. So I probably don't need to worry about that too often. <laughs> they gave that away. They gave that information like, oh. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so uh, I just tried it. Like, yeah, you know, they're not going to come to Idaho, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, the same same here. After Ron, uh, you know, podcast with Ron was like, oh, how dare you even talk to him? Like, well, you know, he, he seemed to me very educated and, um, you know. But I guess, like like we said earlier, you know, people who are very emotional and they hang their entire identity on one thing. I guess they're, you know, to some extent, there's no point of. Uh, but I guess, like you know, like like with Amy and and uh, uh, and, and and Adam, uh, Doctor Adam, Professor Adam Hart, um, they they their their view is like some people who are you know like a silently watching this conversation are the ones who they really mean not the the, the person who is like you know throwing abuse and so on because they're like they're not gonna be convinced they don't want to be convinced but there's probably they might be right they might be right i i i don't know uh i, I let them do what they do <laughs> that's what i'm kind of going on the premise that like they always say that there's 5% on either end that you'll never change There's mind, but there's that nice large majority in the middle that if given the right information, they'll at least be open-minded and think about things. So, you know, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that's the case. And, you know, and I do want to say to listeners that, you know, there's a lot of anti-information out there, but, and I've read a lot of it myself, but when you read it, if you read the book first and then read it, and then start asking yourself questions. Well, they don't address the fact that the meat's used. They don't address the fact that habitat loss. They, you know, they point out certain things that they want to. Their arguments are skewed in, in my take, most of them. I mean, you know, I don't want to speak for all well, of them. Yeah, but, I, but you, you know, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing with, the, with, with, with social media and those posts. This is like quick, you know, bang, bang, like a, like a, like a fight, like an like a exchange of punches, right? You literally spend years researching and writing entire book on the subject. Well, like there's not even comparison, right? And and and, and I kind of uh, uh, adapting the same same approach. Obviously, you know, podcast is nowhere near you know the amount of information, knowledge, or or, or effort like writing a book. But you know, we, we we sitting here over an hour talking about 
stuff, right? And at some point, I think like, well, there's no point really, uh, you know, discussing something with the confines of 280 characters because we just spent hour and 20 minutes talking about it. Go and listen, right? And and and, and, and or, or write a blog post. You know, I, I sometimes see someone write the blog post. Even I sometimes write a blog post. And then there's like opinions, oh, this and that. It's like, well, look, write your own blog post. Address all the issues. Put the references, right? At, at least put the uh, comparable amount of effort to make your point rather than like slap that like, I don't like it. So I guess we need to take it with a grain of salt and that's all. It's hard because you get emotionally... I feel so strongly about it. It's hard, but you do have to do that, you know, and just try to get a win where you can, you know, and try to help people understand where you can. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, folks, uh, Cries of the Savannah, an adventure, an awakening, a journey to understanding African wildlife conservation. Sue Tidwell. Uh, a link, obviously, in the description of the show, uh, in the show notes, on a website, a uh, link to Amazon. Um, highly recommended read uh if you're if you think you know something about the african wildlife hunting human wildlife conflict poaching all these things i'm sure anyone will will learn something that they didn't know i learned a ton so uh sue congratulations on that book it's a fantastic book all the best uh for the future uh i i hope you're gonna write another one I really do. I really do. <laughs> we'll see after this, but thank you so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book and I'm glad you learned from it. And I'm glad people were, you know, getting so much out of it. So that, that warms my heart because I have said I've fallen in love with Africa and its people and its wildlife. So I just want to do what I can for it. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, uh, good luck with your, with your next trip to, uh, Africa. Where, where, when are you going this year? Um, next in year? May, the end of the middle of May. Oh, actually. this year. So, so, so you're already packing your bags. Well, kind of, yeah. We just are getting a bunch of, getting a bunch of balls and stuff to take to the kids over there. We're getting right. more orders. So yeah, thinking about that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Listen, so uh, let's stay in touch and, uh, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I would gladly welcome you again in the, to, to the show. Um, I would love to come back. Yeah, talk again, either about your trip, what you're seeing, or perhaps when you have a you know a second book coming, oh, you are always welcome. Uh, Sue, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 